to his disciples, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Last fall, we spent about two months, months discussing what is the truth. What is the truth about money, for instance? What is the truth about this world? What is the truth about sexuality? What is the truth about temptation? And on and on. We talked about truth, and we learned this fall that truth is very important. Truth is critical. Truth is essential. What do you have in a friendship, if not the truth? What do you have in a marriage, if not the truth? What do you have in a church you go to, if not the truth? Any important relationship requires truth in order for it to be strong and stable and enduring. Truth is trust. Trust is truth. Trust is built on telling the truth, living the truth. When trust has been broken, the two people in the relationship have little left. Once trust has been broken, the two of them have to work twice as hard to get back together again. It can be done, but it becomes really hard to trust again. As we began talking about worship last week, we looked for the first time at the key verse of this series, John 4.24. This is a verse where Jesus said, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. And in truth. Truth is foundational to our worship. Truth is required if we're to worship God as he deserves. Truth is essential if we're going to worship God in a way that changes who we are and how we live. We focused last week on the first part of that statement, God is spirit, his worshipers must worship him in spirit. Worship, you see, is a very personal thing. Worship is a, is a spiritual thing. This is the meeting of our spirit with God's spirit when we worship him. When worship is, as worship should be, our spirit and God's spirit intersect. Our, our spirit and the spirit of God connect and when we worship God, we should connect with Him at a deep, personal level. It's not about anyone else in the room. It is about God. And worship requires getting real with God. That requires truth. Our text this morning comes from 1 John, the very first chapter, verses 5 through 10. And we're going to just read at this point a few of those verses. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son purifies us from all sin. God is light, and him is no darkness at all. Now, it's hard for us to imagine what pure light is like. I don't think any of us have ever seen it. If we did, we would have been blinded by it. We have the sun, and we have the moon. We have all kinds of man-made lights today, all kinds of lighting. You go into the hospital, and they have some bright lights over the operating table that just would amaze you, you know, the, the lumens behind that. But the, the light that God has, the light that is God, 
is an amazing light. The purity and intensity of such light is hard for us to imagine. The Bible says that God dwells in unapproachable light. 1 Timothy 6.16 If we were suddenly transported then directly into the presence of God, our eyes would not be able to see Him due to the brightness, the intensity of His light. His brilliance would overwhelm us. John says in his Revelation, the last book of the Bible, that in heaven there's not going to be any need for the sun or the moon to shine for the glory of God gives its light. Heaven is lit up by God himself, in other words. God himself will be the light of heaven. There will be no street lights. There will be no house lights. There will be no need for any light anywhere because people can see whatever they need just because God is there. And his presence gives enough light for all. Even when Jesus was here on earth in human flesh, he took on man's flesh. He became a man and lived among us. He said at that time, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 8, 12. God is light. God is all light. God is 100% light. No darkness, no corruption, no impurity whatsoever in our great God. How foreign to our experience that concept is, because we're immersed in darkness, are we not? This world is a dark place. There's a lot of bad stuff going on around us. We're like the people Isaiah described in Isaiah 9-2 when he was talking about the coming of the Messiah. And he said, The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And that's how he described Jesus' coming. When we come to worship God, it's good for us to remember that God is light, that he's all light. There's no darkness in him. It helps us to magnify God, to realize that he is far above us, far greater than us. He is greater than any of us can imagine. He is brighter and purer and, and more holy than we can never know. And God is a being whose magnificence our five senses cannot experience. We just don't have the equipment to experience God. He is so great. Think of it. He dwells in unapproachable light, and yet, and yet he invites us to draw near, to come into his presence. We don't have the capacity to even see his glory, and yet he calls us his children, and he invites us to draw close to him. Oh, that we would just learn to praise a being like that, that we would learn to, to make our worship about him and not about us. God is light, and in him is there's no darkness at all. Now, there's another dimension to that. Because light and darkness are incompatible. They can't coexist. The light and purity of God are incompatible with the evil and the darkness of this corrupt world. Having paid uh, uh, for our sins, having, having taken care of us through Christ, is the only way for the two to come together, that Jesus would come and be part of this world. And Jesus, the Holy One of God, the one who lived a perfect life, would give his life for us. The only way that the light and the darkness would ever come together is because of Christ and what he's done. And that's why he came, to take our sins upon himself, to pay the penalty of those sins so that we could even approach God, because otherwise our sinfulness would rule that out, would limit us, would, would set a boundary, would say, no way can you approach God, oh holy God, like that. But 
but through Jesus. We are saved. We are made cleansed. And through Jesus, who gives us his righteousness, we can now approach God, who cannot coexist with sin. Do you see how that works? Unless your sin is dealt with, you cannot approach God. But once Jesus has dealt with your sin, you can now approach God and freely worship him and become his child again. The Bible says that to live in fellowship with God, we must leave the darkness and walk in the light. Having been made clean in Christ, we cannot keep living in the darkness. We must leave the darkness of sin and continue walking in the light of good and truth and righteousness. To live any other way would be a lie. That's why John says it this way in verses 6 and 7. If we claim to have fellowship with God and we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son purifies us, purifies us from all sin. It is possible to get close to God. That is possible. But only when the darkness is removed from our lives. This world is known for its darkness. This world is comfortable living in the darkness, isn't it? Far away from the light of God. Many people live, you know, just however they want to live. They do whatever they want to do. Many people live in this world preferring the darkness to the light. They can do whatever they want to do in the dark. But the light of day would expose the bad things that they are doing. That's why most of the worst crimes ever committed are committed at night. Because under cover of darkness, you can get away with a lot of stuff. And so people hide from the truth and hide from the light. Even criminals can convince other people that they're good people if they only do their bad things at night. They can be the upstanding citizen during the day, and at night they can go do all of the evil and moral things that they have in mind to do. At night, you probably won't get caught. At night, you don't have to answer to anyone for your actions. At night, you think you can get away with almost anything, and maybe you will. Maybe you'll get away with most of it. What does this have to do with worshiping God in truth? Well, when we come to worship God, we have to leave the darkness. We have to leave the darkness behind us. We must break the pattern of living that was ours in the past, a life of sin, a life of continual sin, a life of practicing sin, hour by hour, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. False worship, superficial worship, you know, you pretend you're worshiping, is worshiping God from the shadows. It's like having dark sunglasses on, we'll say. When we look at God from the shadows, we don't feel the glare of light any longer because now we're just not in the light. We're just kind of looking at the light from a distance. We don't see that glare of light pointing out the sin in our lives. And when we try to worship God from the shadows, we worship Him in our way, what pleases us. We worship Him at our timetable. When we're ready to go to church, we go to church. When we feel like thinking about God, we do. Otherwise, we don't. There are no repercussions to that kind of worship. From the shadows, we don't feel His demands upon our lives. From the shadows, worship is easy. Worship is almost cool. <laughs> there is no cost to such worship. Because from the shadows, you can take it on your terms. And you can worship God however you want. But that kind of worship is empty. 
That kind of worship is meaningless. Worshiping in truth requires an honest and open heart before God. Worshiping in truth is acknowledging our sins and turning from them. Look at 1 John 1, verses 8 through 10 now with me. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. Worshiping in truth is acknowledging our sins and turning from them. We may claim we are in the light, but we walk in the darkness. The Bible says if that's the case, that we're liars then, and the truth is not in us. Obviously, there's no way to worship in truth and still continue sinning day after day. The two are incompatible, just as light and darkness are incompatible, as God is incompatible with sin. Thankfully, the Bible also says, if we walk in the light, then we have fellowship with God and each other, and God will purify us from our sin. If we live and worship and love and serve in truth, then we stay connected to God day after day. And our worship is not just an hour on Sunday morning. Our worship is the entire scope of our lives. It's when we go to work. It's when we go to school. It's when we live in our homes, when we're out visiting our friends, and we're playing out on the ball field. Whatever it may be, worship is there too because we're living in that connection that we have with God. Now, does this mean, leaving sin, mean that we could never sin again? As soon as we sin, man, it's all over. You've lost it. Oh, no, you were, you were in Christ. You were clean. You were purified. You had a relationship with God, and then you messed up. Now you've forfeited it all. You've lost it all. No, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that if you slip up one time, you can never come back to God, because God knows who we are. He knows how we're made. He made us. He knows how we live and that we're going to sin occasionally. What John is talking about, if you look at the language that he speaks in, the, the verbiage actually says is ongoing sin, continuous sin, the practice of sin. Sinning on a regular basis without regret, without repentance. That's what he's talking about. You cannot worship God. You cannot pretend to follow God and just keep on sinning as if there's no repercussions, as it doesn't matter. You can't go on living as you did before. You must leave the practice of sin, the continuousness of your sin. You're going to slip up sometimes. You're going to mess up. And John gives us, right here, the practical way to handle that. If we confess our sin then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A Christian who desires to be close with God strives to walk in God's light every day. A Christian who worships in truth loves God and walks in obedience to God. But When they make mistakes, when they sin, then they freely confess that. That's why John said in verses 8 and 9, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us, but if we confess... He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. Do you see the difference? If we claim we have not sinned, we make God out to be a liar. But if we acknowledge our sins, He is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all of our sin. Sometimes, however, 
we may find it hard to leave our sin. Sometimes we may decide, you know, it's a little easier, a little nicer, a little more fun to hang on to a few things. I think I'll, I'll just go ahead and hang on to this one or that one because I still enjoy those. I still want those. And sometimes we're like this little child. I read about Billy Graham going to visit this family. And they had a young family. They had this little boy. He's playing off in the corner. And he's talking to, Billy Graham's talking to the father. And all of a sudden, the son comes over and he's got his hand down in a vase, an expensive vase. His hand's caught in the vase. And so he says, Daddy, I can't get my hand back out. And so the dad says, well, let me try. So he grabs the vase and he pulls it as hard as he can. They can't get it off. The son's just stuck inside this vase. And uh, they're thinking about breaking the vase to get his hand out of there, you know. And he says, well, listen, son, try one more thing. He says, now watch daddy's hand. Take your hand and extend it like this. Just point your fingers out as straight as you can and maybe we can slide you out of the vase then. And uh, he's demonstrating. The little boy says, kind of surprises at both. He says, daddy, I can't do that. If I do that, I'll drop my dime. <laughs> the whole point was there was a dime he's holding on to in that vase. And finally, they convinced him to let go of the dime and they got his hand out of the vase. Isn't that just like us? God is saying, let go of these things and you can get free. Let go of these things and you can break free and you can live the life you've always wanted to live, the life I have in mind for you. Say, but what about my dime? And that's all it is. It's a dime. It's worth a dime. It's worth a penny. It's worth a nickel. It's worth nothing compared to the life that you're going to go to. And yet we hold on to it and it keeps us imprisoned in its grasp. If we claim we've not sinned, we're lying. We've all sinned. Everybody in this room has sinned. If you're a Christian, you've been a Christian for a long time, you still sin, don't you? I'll acknowledge it. I still sin. I still commit sin. But when I do, the, the thing to do is what John says. If you confess your sin, you can be cleansed of that and you can move on to the, the righteousness that God has in mind for you. You cannot make the practice of sin your normal thing once you're a Christian or you are denying the relationship you have with God. True change has to begin inside. When your spirit joins up with God's spirit, Something is happening when that connection occurs, when God is speaking to your heart and your heart is open, your heart is transparent, your heart is listening, and there's no, nothing hidden. There's nothing that you're pretending. No mask. You're just being honest and real with God. Worship happens. And changing of your life begins. Worship in truth doesn't have anything to do with anyone else. It has to do with you and God. No one else can do this for you. This is between you and God. So it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks is true or who they think you are. If they think they know you. They think they get you figured out. That doesn't matter. All of that, just set that aside. It doesn't matter what else anyone may think about you in the physical way that you express your worship. So you're sitting in here and we've turned down the lights so you can be free to raise your hands to God or you can be free to bow your head. You can be free... Get down on your knees if you want to. You can be free to, to close your eyes and, and pray for a while. Don't worry about what anybody else is thinking around you. Or you can be free to just shout out to God and sing as loud as you want to sing, even if you have a terrible voice, and just sing to God and say, God, I'm here to praise you. You know what my voice is like already, so I'm going to just sing. I'm going to go, let it loose. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have anything to do with impressing some other human being. It has to be with 
to do with being before God and offering your praise to Him. It has to do with being totally honest and open with Him. That is worshiping God in truth. Remember last week I read from Isaiah chapter 6 and read about Isaiah coming before the throne of God in this vision. And immediately as he saw God lifted up and he saw his, his uh, grandeur and he saw these, these seraph creatures, you know, shouting out, Holy, holy is the Lord of, of hosts. And the whole earth is full of his glory. And, and Isaiah, how did he respond? He said, man, I don't belong here. I'm sinful. I have no business being here in the throne room of God. I, I have no business being here because I'm a sinner. And God spoke to that and he cleansed him. He atoned for that sin. He, he freed him. He healed him from that sin. And Isaiah was called into God's service. That is the same, same thing that happens in each of our lives as we come before God. We come in honesty. We come in transparency. We come admitting that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And God says, that's just where I want you. That's just where you need to be. I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to atone for your sin through the blood of my son Jesus. And I'm going to set you free to serve me, to love me, to obey me. For many, many years, the universal sign of surrender has been hands raised high in the air like this, hasn't it? Armies are fighting. One army is definitely winning. It's, it's, it's to the point of, you know, if I don't surrender, I'm going to get killed here. I'm going to die today. And so soldiers stand up, they raise their hands, and they begin walking towards the enemy. Their hands raised up. That is a universal sign of surrender. In the Jewish way of worshiping God, this is a sign of worship. Either like this or like this, to raise their hands in God and to say, God, my hands are open. My hands are clean. I'm not, I'm not hiding anything. This is who I am. It's, a, it's an act of praise. It's an act of of devotion to God and lifting your hands kind of raises your head too. You're just looking up to God. You're not worried about what's around you. You're not worried about anybody else. You're just thinking about God. There's one other posture that the Israelites would often get into. It would be kneeling. Some of us still kneel today. Some of us kneel and then we can't get back up again. And sometimes they would actually go prostrate before God. You'll see Muslims still doing that, bowing before God three times a day. It's not really conducive for that in here when you're sitting in rows like this. For us to get prostrate before God would be hard. You know, move the chairs. Let's all get down on the floor. But we can do this, can't we? Standing in our own personal space there with anybody right around us, we can lift our hands like this. Would you, would you, if you can, lift your hands like this right now? This is a universal sign of surrender. You can't do it very long. The blood runs out of your hands, I know. But this is a universal sign of surrender. What everybody's doing, it's comfortable. But when you're the only one in your row doing it, it's not so comfortable, is it? Okay, you can put them down again. I want you to think about that. I was raised in a culture. I was raised in an environment where that was unacceptable. You could not do that. I was raised in an environment... You couldn't clap your hands if you got excited or if you wanted to clap at the music. I was raised in an environment where you were to be as quiet and as inconspicuous as you could possibly be in worship because you didn't want to draw attention to yourself. You didn't want anybody else looking at you. You didn't want to be embarrassed or shamed by your actions. 
And so you did nothing except maybe you got to sing, and maybe you got to bow your head, and maybe you got to partake of the communion when it came by. A few things that we all did together, but that was the only things you could do publicly. And I'm here to tell you that is wrong. That is not the right way to worship God. That is a worship that depends on the people around me. That is a worship that is embarrassed to show my devotion to God, to show my desire to serve God, my, my, my willingness to surrender to God. And I'm not telling you have to raise your hands. That's not the sign. That's not the thing that makes it all right then. That's not you know, this magic thing that happens. You raise your hands and now all of a sudden you're worshiping God because your heart could be still totally wrong. What I'm saying is, is wrong is when we don't feel free to express our worship and we don't feel like we can acknowledge the God that we are worshiping because we're so worried about the, the people around us. That is wrong. And we need to correct that. We need to change that culture, that climate. And I want to acknowledge that today with you. If a worshiper wants to show his or her devotion to God, a good way to do that is to raise your hands to God. It may be something else. You may want to get on your knees. You may want to do something else. I, I want you to feel free to do that without wondering what anybody else thinks. Thinking about this uh, this morning in our new song, The Stand, there's a powerful line in that song that says this, I'll stand with arms, arms high and heart abandoned in awe of the one who gave it all. I'll stand my soul, Lord, to you surrendered. All I am is yours. All I am is yours. That's what you're saying by raising your hands to God or by bowing your head. Or if you want to raise your hands down here at this level, that's okay. It doesn't matter. Is your heart in the right place with God to say, all I am is yours. I am here. I am a, a totally abandoned to you. I am lifting up my arms and my heart in awe of the one who gave him gave his life for me. There are three kinds of people in churches today. There are people who go to church. For some reason, I don't know what it is, but they are living in disobedience to God. They're not worshiping either in spirit or in truth. They're worshiping or going to worship, but nothing's really happening because they're not there connecting with God's spirit. They're not there in truthfulness, in honesty before God. So it's kind of wasted effort. That's one group. There's a second group of people that wish to love God, that wish to obey God, that desire to know God and, and, and to, to bring praise to God. They do acknowledge, they want to thank Him, they want to, they want to thank for His blessings and, and the provisions for their life and all of that. And they may be worshiping in spirit to some part. You know, their, their spirit is trying to connect with the Spirit of God. And so there, there's that second group that's somehow getting there. But there's a third group this group is, is just getting sold out to God. They're not there yet, but th that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to be totally honest, try, totally open to God, and, and they are trying to be truthful to God, and they are trying desperately every day, not just on Sunday morning, but every day to connect their spirit with the Spirit of God. And they are the ones that are worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Paul Stanley was an infantry company commander. None of us ever knew. He was in Vietnam, 1967, and uh, saw a lot of action there. As a company commander, he said he saw many Viet Cong soldiers surrender to the Americans. 
And then he tells this story. And I just want to read it for you this morning. About these Viet Cong soldiers surrendering to the Americans. As they were placed in custody, marched away, briefly interrogated, their body language and facial expressions always caught my attention. Most hung their heads in shame, staring at the ground, unwilling to look their captors in the eye. But some stood erect, staring defiantly at those around them. Resisting any attempt by our men to control them, they had surrendered physically, but not mentally. On one occasion, after the enemy had withdrawn, I came upon several soldiers surrounding a wounded Viet Cong, shot through the lower leg. He was hostile and frightened, yet helpless. He threw mud, and he kicked with his one good leg when anyone came around him. When I joined the circle around the wounded enemy, one soldier asked me, Sir, what can we do? Uh, what can we do? Because he's, he's obviously injured. He's, he's losing blood. And he needs medical attention. I looked down at this struggling Viet Cong and saw the face of a 16 or 17 year old boy. I unbuckled my pistol belt and hand grenades so he could not grab them. And then speaking gently, I moved toward him. He stared fear, fearfully at me as I, as I looked into his eyes, as I knelt down. But he allowed me to slide my arms under him and pick him up. And as I walked with him toward the waiting helicopter, he began to cry and hold me tight. He kept looking at me and squeezing me tighter. We climbed into the helicopter and took off. During the ride, our young captive sat on the floor, clinging to my leg. Never having ridden in a helicopter, he looked out with panic as we gained altitude and flew over the trees. He fixed his eyes back at me, and I smiled reassuringly and put my hand on his shoulder. After landing, I picked him up, and I walked toward the medical tent. As we crossed the field, I felt the tension leave his body and his tight grasp loosen. His eyes softened and his head leaned against my chest. The fear and resistance were gone. He had finally surrendered. Paul Stanley then concluded his story with these words I thought had pretty great impact. He said, The God to whom we surrender is not our enemy. He heals and he cares for everyone that he takes captive. Some people resist God. Some people rebel against God as if he's the enemy. But he is the God who loves them. He is the God who loves them enough that he died for them. He died for you and me. What an amazing, amazing God we have. When we surrender to God, we surrender to the one who gave his life for us. Jesus gave his life so we could go free. Jesus gave his life so we could be forgiven. He gave his life so that we could obey God, so that we could serve God, so that we could love God, so we could live for God without fear. Without fear. The one that we've surrendered to is not our enemy. He heals and he forgives. Have you surrendered to him today? Don't fight it. Don't hang on to the little dimes of your life as if they're so valuable but surrender to God. We're going to sing together in a few minutes. It'll be a time of decision. If you're ready to surrender to God, I want you to just come up here and sit down.
Don't have to do anything in front of everybody else. This is between you and God. But I just want you to come up here and I want you to acknowledge your need for God. We'll talk with you uh, at the close of the service then.